0: Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 15 through 23. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, the end of the chapter. For this reason, I too, having heard of the, of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you, while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this passage is a beautiful picture of the power of Christ Jesus, our King. And it's this sort of run on sentence that Paul excels at, right? From one thought to the next, building and building on this theme. Starting there in verse 19, <clears throat> the greatness, the surpassing greatness of his power. And then, strength of his might, seated at the right hand of the Father, above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. He just keeps building and building. It's this glorious, trying to, trying to explain to us how, how glorious our King Jesus really is. How powerful he really is. How ultimate his authority is. But to what end? Well, that's what our sermon is about. We could focus in just on that description of Jesus, but we read more than that, right? And Paul wrote that in the context of trying to convince us of something, actually. And he wasn't trying to convince us of the power of Jesus. He was trying to cause us to see something important. So let's back up to verse 15. Paul, we see in verses 15 and 16, prays for the Ephesian church. Now, if you read the beginnings of his letters, this is a theme that you'll see over and over again. Not just that he prays for the Ephesian church, but that he prays for all the churches, and that he has a burden for all of the churches, that they would bear good fruit. Particularly, he cares for the churches that he planted, which were most of the ones that we have letters to, right? And he's constantly praying for them. You see, he says things like, I make mention of you in my prayers day by day, you know, and, and, and he talks about the burden that he has for all of the churches when he's talking about all of the uh, sufferings that he has gone through on behalf of the gospel of Christ Jesus. But his concern is not just for those he knows and loves, for those churches that he planted, those people that he led to faith. His concern is broader than just the Ephesian church, right? And in fact, one of the things that he points out in verses 15 and 16 is that the Ephesian church also has more concern than just themselves. The Ephesian church... One of the things that he gives thanks for is that they have love for all the saints. So what we're seeing is sort of a mirror image, this reflection back of what Paul finds so gloriously delightful in the Ephesian church. He himself also is modeling for us a care for more than just the one local church but for the church as a whole. For their, their love for all the saints. And this is something that we ourselves should grow in. Our concern is not just that our doctrine here is good, right? And as long as our doctrine here is good then the rest of the world can burn. Our concern is not just that the churches of Evangel Presbytery stay pure and holy, right? Our concern actually is that the PCA would stay pure and holy. That they would repent of their unwillingness to discipline sin, for instance. This is love for the saints, that causes our concern to be broader than simply the people sitting around us right here this morning. Love for the saints. And if we don't care, then we're not going to get this commendation that Paul gives in his prayers. when he says that he has heard of the faith of the Lord Jesus, or faith in the Lord Jesus, among the church in Ephesus, right? And their love for all the saints. Now, verse 6 verse 15 starts with for this reason. Okay? And we saw verse 14 last time we were studying this. So, uh We've got we to gotta go back a little bit and remind ourselves of what he's talking about when he says, for this reason. But he's talking about, in verses 13 and 14, he says, "...in Christ you also, after listening to the message of truth of the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed with him, sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise." Who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory, for this reason, and we get it to our passage. Okay, for this reason. Now that's a long sentence, Paul. You gotta you gotta go back and you gotta work through it, right? For what reason? <clears throat> well, to the praise of his glory, ultimately, is <laughs> is what Paul is talking about all through this intro in Ephesians. But, um, but he's concerned as well that the, to the praise of the glory of Christ Jesus that we see at the end of verse 12 is really about the salvation of the Ephesians and the, the effectiveness of the gospel in bringing about Salvation for those who believe. Okay? So when Paul starts in verse 15, kind of a new thought by saying, for this reason, I too, he is, he is speaking of the fact that the Ephesians have heard and believed the gospel. And so he brings it back up again, and that's why it's, it's really not that hard to make the connection, because he says, For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, what? What does he do? Verse 16, he does not cease giving thanks for you. Because they have believed, therefore, he also can give thanks. And he does give thanks on and on and on. Every time he prays, day after day, he's giving thanks. Giving thanks for the fact that they have believed. And what a beautiful thing it is to be able to say they have believed. Praise God, right? We say praise God, and then do we, do we praise him? Do we thank him? When somebody new believes We are to give thanks. And so Paul's prayer is one of thanksgiving for the Ephesians whenever he mentions them in his prayers. And then he says not just that he gives thanks, but that he prays for them. And what does he pray for them? He doesn't just... Pray that they would remain faithful, that they would remain loving for the, for the other saints, right? He's not just uh, mentioning their love for the saints and his concern for the churches out of nowhere. He's pointing out that he has heard of their faith and he's seen evidence of their faith, which is their love for the saints, And then he begins to seek that that fruit would continue. Okay? He wants those very things to go on, to not end. And so he prays and his prayer begins in verse 17 for a few things. That they would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation of knowledge of Jesus which is to say they have faith in Christ Jesus and then he prays that they would know Jesus more what is it? let's look at it again a spirit of wisdom and revelation of knowledge of him the wisdom that he wants them to have is not a worldly wisdom but it's a wisdom that reveals God to them. He wants their knowledge of God to increase. He wants us to know God better. And verse 18, he can, there's another prayer request, okay, that they would see Look at verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Now, what that is saying is Paul, Paul is praying that God would open their heart eyes. That God would open their heart eyes. To have your eyes enlightened is what happens when you've had your eyes closed all night long sleeping, Right? And you open it up and you see the ceiling. My eyes have been enlightened. Right? They have been in the dark. And now my eyes have been enlightened. Or maybe a better way of saying it is to have your eyes enlightened. Is to go from uh, not being able to see. To being able to see. You remember that Jesus healed several blind men throughout his ministry, the three years that we read of the miracles, and some of those healings that he did were of blind men, right? They went from being unable to see to being able to see. It didn't matter whether they had their eyes opened or closed. They needed their eyes enlightened. And so just as Jesus healed the physical eyes of those men, Paul is praying that we would have our spiritual eyes healed, that they would be opened to being able to see light. What does it mean to have your spiritual eyes opened, or the eyes of your heart The eyes of your heart. Well, without getting into a lot of uh, Greek philosophy, okay, the heart matters. The heart has a lot of meaning. And we have a very different view of the body and of the heart and the way things work today than the Greeks did. Okay? And so... Um, that would have meant something very specific to the Ephesians, who are mostly Greeks, okay? Uh, and it's not necessarily what it would mean to us. Uh, for us, the heart is, as we think metaphorically of the heart, we think mostly of emotions, Right? We think mostly of emotions, um, and there's a lot of that in this to have the eyes of your heart opened um, is going to include your emotions, all right but it's more than just uh, it's more than just your emotions. We, we sort of have your, your brain here and your heart here and your brain has you know thoughts and your heart has emotions, right That's really not the way that. Paul is speaking here. <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> to have... Excuse, <clears throat> to have verse 18, for Paul to pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, includes knowledge. And it's a, but but it's, it's not just a knowledge up here, it's a deep experiential knowledge. Okay, so this is kind of the difference between um, studying how to climb a wall versus practicing climbing a wall. Okay, you can read and read and read and read about all of the safety things that you're supposed to do with your ropes ahead of time and of uh, where the best handholds are on that wall. And you can read about it for weeks in preparation, and and that'll help. That'll give you some head knowledge, right? But it's not until you start actually practicing the knots, practicing the climbing, that you begin to experientially know the truth or falsehood of what you've read ahead of time. Or with practicing an instrument, you can read the book on how to play the piano as many times as you want. But once you have played it and played it and played it and played it, you have experientially written it into yourself in a way that your fingers almost remember it, right? It's a very different kind of knowledge that Paul is talking about than just a head knowledge. To have the eyes of your heart opened so that you will know. There is is something explicitly knowledge-based in the heart to Paul. Not just emotional. But it's something much deeper than just a head knowledge. It's to know it for it for that knowledge to have sunk down until it's deep in your heart and so you rely on it. There's no doubt anymore about it. It's not something that you have to remind yourself of anymore. You know it instinctively, intuitively. It's memorized in your fingers. You know how to tie that knot, but when you first do it, you, you only know. And you have to think about every step of tying that figure eight. But once you've done it a hundred times, you don't think about it anymore. You've experienced it enough that you know it. You know it in a different way, don't you? This is kind of what Paul's getting at here. It's the eyes of your heart have to be opened for you to know this truth. And what is the truth? The hope of his calling. He prays. He knows they have faith. He knows they have love for the saints. He prays that those things will continue, right? But what does his prayer really become? His prayer becomes that they would deeply, experientially know, because God has opened the eyes of their heart, Something very important for them. The hope of his calling. And he continues and says, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. We've talked about the inheritance already. He's talked about how the Holy Spirit has been given as a pledge to us of this inheritance. Okay? But what he wants us to see is... Not just that we have the inheritance, right? But he wants us to see the riches of the glory of this inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus. How amazing the inheritance really is. He wants us to to not just know up here that there is such a thing as heaven. He wants us to feel, yes... (laughs) And to know deeply in our hearts, because our our spiritual eyes, our heart eyes, have been opened to the truth of the glory of this calling in Christ Jesus. And the hope of this calling. The riches that this inheritance means for us. Because if you think that, well, you know, On the balance, heaven and hell, eh, I choose heaven because hell sounds pretty miserable, right? You don't have the foggiest clue what the riches of that inheritance really are. You just know that it's less sucky to sit on a cloud playing a harp than it is to burn for all eternity. But you have not had your spiritual eyes of your heart enlightened to the riches of the glory of this inheritance, have you? Because you don't sit on a cloud playing a harp being bored for all eternity. You have a rich and glorious inheritance in Christ Jesus and you can place all your bets on it. The hope is sure. And he wants, Paul wants us to know that. These things... To know them deeply, intuitively, instinctively. Not just, yeah, heaven is glorious. That's what the Bible says. No, I want to be there. I look forward to it. It is going to be great. I will be with Jesus. In fact, this goes with his desire that we would know God more. Because the the more you know God, the more you have your eyes opened to a knowledge of the Most High, the more you cannot help but fall on your face, right, and worship, and what? Delight in Him. If you have faith, you can delight in Him. If you do not have faith, you can only fall on your face in fear. But when we have been granted the promise that we have in Christ Jesus, the more we know God, the more glorious it is, the more we look forward to that hope, the hope of our calling. That inheritance that we will receive. And this is what Paul wants our eyes to be opened to. Our heart eyes. What are your heart eyes set on? Are your heart eyes set only on earthly things? Then they are closed. They need to be enlightened. You need your eyes opened by God. To the riches of this inheritance. To his glorious truths. So that you can know them In a way that is much deeper. This is Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. For us. That they would see. That we would see. And and what are those things? The hope of his calling. So he's reminding us that we are predestined, as we saw in our first sermon on this. The hope of our calling is the fact that he predestined, right? He's reminding us of that. He's going back to that point. And then the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And in, in that, he's reminding us of what he said and we studied last week about that inheritance. We've received the Holy Spirit as pledge for and then there's one other thing. So, verse 18 starts, that the eyes of your heart, his prayer is that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, right? So that, and there's three things, we've hit two of them. So that you will know what is the hope of his calling. And then the implied is so that you will know, the next part, what are the riches Of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So those those both echo back to what he's been talking about earlier in the letter. And then verse 19 continues the thought the three things that he wants us, our eyes, to be enlightened so that we will know, so that we will know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. And that's when he goes on to his doxology of the praise of the glorious power of Christ Jesus. So that's where I started and I said, now let's back up, make sure we understand why he goes into this glorious medley of all the the ways of talking about Christ's greatness and power. Okay, This is where it starts. It starts with a prayer request that Paul is making that we would have our eyes opened to see it. He wants us to know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? That's the question. We want to know it. Because we've already studied the previous two in previous sermons. What is that? What is he talking about? Well, let's first just see what's implied by that sentence. There's something amazing that is implied by that sentence. Again, it starts verse 9. He wants us to know what is the surpassing greatness of his power, but not just not just that we would know the surpassing greatness of his power. We can talk about how God is omnipotent. We can talk about the fact that Jesus Christ is God the Son and that He is omnipotent. And to some degree that's what He goes into, but it's not just that he has surpassing greatness of power, it, that power has a purpose, and that purpose is revealed by implication in the end of this sentence where it says, toward us who believe. God's power has a purpose that he is using it for. And it's toward us who believe. Now, if you think about things that are terrifyingly powerful, okay, I often uh, think back to an illustration that I read or heard about a man standing at the bottom of a construction hole. Now, you, you guys have seen equipment it digs holes, right? Those great big diggers. Some of them are bigger and bigger and bigger. And the illustration is of man standing at the bottom of a hole that's actively being dug by the biggest digger you can imagine. Now, would you want to be at the bottom of a skyscraper hole while they're digging giant bucket loads of dirt and rocks out of there and lifting them out? I wouldn't want to be down there, right? And the illustration just said, there's a guy. Why can you just stand down there feeling so safe? You you look like you don't have a care in the world while you're working down here and that giant huge thing is digging next to you. And he turns and he says, you see that guy up there running that digger? That's my dad. You can see... That illustration stuck with me, right? It's it's clear that there is power, right? Power that can destroy and power that in the hands of the Father with an intent and a care and a love. It's a totally different thing, right? Now, what do we see here? He's describing the great, the surpassing greatness of the power of Christ and that it is toward something. It's toward us who believe. there's a, there's a purpose behind it. My illustration does not get it the purpose, right? So don't try to take that too far. I just that illustration has been percolating in my mind for years so it just finally had to come out. The power that is so great in Christ Jesus he continues to talk about it and he says these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Now what Paul is getting at here <clears throat> is that when, when Christ is using his power for its purpose, as he has revealed it in his word, he's using it on our behalf. And there is nothing that he cannot accomplish, and there is nothing that he will not accomplish on our behalf. And then, to prove it, he gives the evidence. And the evidence is what he begins to say next. What God has done already. He says, These works on our behalf are perfectly in accord, and we're going to come back to that in a minute, okay? Perfectly in accord With what he has done already. Which demonstrates more power, strength of his might, than anybody imagined would ever be displayed on earth. And all of it has been displayed in Christ. How? By raising him from the dead. You see, he goes into this list. It's in accordance with the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. God has revealed and brought about the the revelation of the glory of his power when, verse 20, he raised him from the dead. One. Two, when he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, which again, we've seen that several times. We're going to keep seeing that far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and 3 subjected all put in put all things in subjection under his feet and 4 gave him as head over all things to the church now that's where it finally comes back around to where we're seeing not just this glorious doxology of the praise of the glory of his might, but we see the things that he has chosen to talk about coming back around to the fact that it is the church that he's concerned about in the first place. What does he desire us to know? The power of Christ, yes. But what? Toward us who believe. What did, what, what did Paul decide to bring out when he talks about the power? Raising, him from, raising Jesus from the dead. It's a glorious, amazing demonstration of power, yes. Right? More amazing, like I said, than anybody ever thought they would see on earth. This is power. Right? And then... It continued from there, seating him at the right hand in the heavenly places, which is to point out how far above everything earthly it is, right? But not just that. Having been seated at the right hand, he's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, which means even, not just the earthly, but the spiritual powers and dominions, So Christ's power is not just over this earth, but as we've been told, our battle is not just with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, right? So Christ is over those. And he's over every name. His name is above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. It is the name of power that he has. The name of power. Now you remember when the apostles cast out demons, they say, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, come out. And the demons that Christ has dominion and authority and power over have no option, do they? The name of power has been named. And so they must come out. And you also remember that there were those seven Jewish men that tried to cast out demons and said, I command you the name of Jesus whom Paul come out, right? And the the response is, Jesus I know, and Paul I've heard of, but who are you? This is not a magical token that we can just wield as we desire, right? I say the name of power and, and now all of a sudden I can do magic. No, his power is wielded for a purpose By Him. And His purpose is the saving of His people. That's what He has been accomplishing through the raising of His Son from the dead, right? That's what He's accomplishing by putting Him above all. If if Christ had been raised from the dead and not given then all authority in heaven and on earth, what hope would we have against the demons? It's necessary that he have all authority, that he have all this power, isn't it? Because that's how big a deal it is, our salvation. It can't be accomplished unless Christ is still powerful. All-powerful. There is no name of power except His. You can't say, you know, by the Apostle Paul, I command you to come out. You can't cry on Mary and expect for anything to happen. There is no name of power except His name, either in heaven or on earth. You understand, that's what this is talking about. The Roman Catholic Church tells you that you can pray to other people and that they have power. They don't. There is no other name of power except the name of Christ Jesus. All of it. The names in heaven or on earth. Future names or past names. There's nobody except Christ. And so... He then put all things in subjection under his feet. The all-encompassing power and authority of Jesus over all things, all people, all spirits, all powers, all names, all of everything. That's what Paul tries to show us, right? Is meant to demonstrate the impossibility of him not accomplishing what he intends. You really think he's been given all authority in heaven and on earth, That the demons, the angels, every name that is named, all are in subjection to him. And then he's going to fail to accomplish his desire? No, he's going to accomplish it, isn't he? He's been given all the power and authority in the universe. There's no chance that he's not going to accomplish What he intends and sets out to accomplish. So once again, what is the surpassing greatness of this power bent towards? What is its intention? Us who believe. That's what Paul's talking about. That power is turned toward us. And after everything was placed under Christ's power and authority, what did God do? He gave him as head over all things to the church. Now, as we get to the end, nearer to the end of this book, in Ephesians 5, excuse me, we're going to get a chance to study that more in depth. The The church and the relationship between the church and Jesus Christ. But for now, what is the church? Well, this passage tells us the church is the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ and it says the fullness of him. The fullness of him. Jesus the son of God perfect in lacking in nothing from all eternity is in some sense not complete without his body the body is the fullness of him just as we fill up the cup of his suffering So we are the fullness of his body. It's mind-blowing. But that's why there is no doubt at all in Paul's mind, in my mind, there ought to be no doubt in your mind that he's going to save his church. He's going to do it. It is his body. It is his fullness. Even though he is the one who fills all in all. So again, this is sort of reminding us that he's not lacking anything, right? There's nothing that he needs from us. We don't fill him up. He fills all in all. Nevertheless, the church is his body and it is his, the, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So it is just part of who he is that he does this work. So remember, we, we, Paul wants us to know who God is. He wants us to know God better. Have our eyes our hearts open so that we would know God. The more you know God, the more you see this is this is God's character. This is this flows out of who He is. That He's saving His people. It's not an option for Him. Yes, it, it's it's clearly up to Him. But this plan goes way back, predestined from all time. Right? It's it, why. Because it's who He is. He's going to do it. The more you know Christ, the more you know the Father, the more you know the Spirit, the more you understand that everything He does and everything He has done is in perfect accord with His plan to save His people. So I said earlier that we'd come back to that phrase. This Perfectly in accord. Verse 19 is where that comes from. That these things are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. So when Paul points at all of the working of the strength of his might that he has done, starting with the resurrection, that glorious earthly demonstration of power, and then showing that that power becomes all the more so in heaven right? All of those things are what? Toward us who believe. It's all in perfect accord with that plan that he has had and is fulfilling, that he is going to save his people. All his authority and power is turned to that end. So is there anything that will prevent him from doing it? No, he's going to save his people. Do you see it? Are the eyes of your heart enlightened to it? Do you see who he is, that it's impossible that he wouldn't do it? That's Paul's prayer, that your eyes of your heart would be enlightened to that. We are his body. What's he going to do to his body? He's going to save it. By the strength, that glorious strength, the power of his might. Open your eyes. Know it. Feel it. Believe it.